If you brought your Bibles this morning, uh, turn them to the Gospel according to Matthew. Again last week, I was confronted by so many questions after we were done, which I, I so appreciate. It shows that folks are paying attention. Um, so this week, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna just start right where we left off. We're going to look, uh, at least to begin with, with a very single verse. And if, if you're a visitor this morning, we've been in Matthew for quite some time. We're making our way through Matthew's gospel account of the life of our Lord. And we're going we're gonna to focus on one verse that I touched on last week, but I want to give it more attention this week. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Father, we thank you for your word and look to you, Lord, um, to speak to our hearts from your word, the truth that we need, Lord, for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to handle this kind of the same way we did last week. We're just going to do a little bit of visualization just to put ourselves right in the setting. So Jesus has told the parables about the wedding feast that he's going to do something else in the verses coming up. We're going to look at that. But right in the middle, between these two blocks of Scripture, Jesus says this. So I'm going to read it again. And I want you to again just try to put yourself in the scene. Only this time, focus on the person and character of Jesus and try to get a sense of what it sounded like. What was the tone that he used when he said this? For many are called, but few are chosen. The expression is a challenging one, and that's why we have such enthusiastic discussion about it. Um, this particular verse of Scripture is often um, referenced in the midst of discussion about very strongly held doctrinal beliefs. Our goal this morning is, is to understand what the Lord meant in the context in which he said this. We often forget that these verses of Scripture, these kind of simple uh, pithy statements is one of the terms that's used. Um, they didn't occur on a billboard. You know what I mean? I think we've all seen that billboard of Jesus outside the garden door knocking in the verse of Scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And that, that's got its purpose. Uh, but these aren't billboard expressions. These expressions occurred in the context of something happening something being said. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to try to see this extraordinary statement in the context of really of the entire chapter. So let, let's begin with that, and then we can answer, uh, try to answer what it means. Jesus, of course, had just finished telling a story that made up two parables. We've been talking about that the last two weeks. The whole storyline is about a king who throws a banquet for his son, a wedding banquet. And in the first part of that parable, there are those who are invited. They had been invited. They had known in advance. Um, but at the critical moment, they declined the invitation. When the banquet's ready to start, food's on the grill, they, they decline. They have other things to do. The king repeats his invitation that is spurned, and of course, as a result, they face horrible, horrible consequences. The second part of the story, the second parable, is the king sends out his servants to invite others to come. And this time, they bring in all manner of people in the feast begins. At this point, the king enters in and finds someone not properly dressed. He had entered, but declined the garment. In both cases, 
the people that are the object of the parable are those who declined something the king offered them. In one case, they declined the invitation. Second case, the person declines the invitation. The emphasis in those parables is on the people who reject the king's offer. The contrast isn't between those who accept and those who reject. In fact, if you think back through the parables we've talked about the last couple of weeks, the people who accept the king's offer, they're not really talked about at all. They're just described as showing up. Nothing really is said about them other than, well, they show up. All the focus in those two parables is on the two groups that accept, or rather the two groups that reject the king's offer. One group rejecting the invitation, the other individual rejecting the king's provision of the appropriate garment. Now put that thought on pause and we'll move forward. That section, after the statement in verse 14, many are called, few are chosen, is followed by three blocks or three instances of confrontation. Jesus steps out of parabolic teaching and there's three confrontations and we're going to look at these confrontations really quickly. Verse 15, and I strongly suggest you read the rest of the chapter later if you haven't already. It's, it's, just, it's great. Verse 15 is one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture. If you've been here long at all, you know that I reference this a lot. Uh, the Pharisees come up to Jesus. They initiate this confrontation. Um, and um, they, it begins with them discussing how they might trap him. They're obviously upset. They're, they're sharp enough to realize that that first parable was aimed like right at them. And so because they're upset, they're, they're, they're coming after him, right? They saw themselves as the chosen, entitled, invited ones, and so the parable wouldn't have sat well. And they approach Jesus with a question, uh, but they don't do it directly. They don't do it directly. Um, it says in verse 16, it's extraordinary, they send their, their pupils their younger disciples, along with the Herodians. Now, that's a group we haven't heard of, and they don't occur very often in Scripture. There's not a whole lot known about them, except they were friends of Herod, which kind of tells you all you need to know, because as much as the Jews didn't like the Sadducees because of their, their loose handling of the biblical text, their abuse of the power of the priesthood, and their association with the wealthy hierarchy, I mean, the Herodians were liked even less because they were associated with Herod, who everybody hated. They probably hated Herod more than they hated the Romans. I mean, he was like the universally hated guy. So these are a group of people. And to see them united with, with the Pharisees would, would have been totally extraordinary. Um, the, the obvious intent was to try to put Jesus off guard a little bit. And part and parcel of it, uh, if you'll allow me to use the word, they were really trying to schmooze the guy. Because they show up to Jesus, and what do they say? Now, they're, they're not all inclined to listen to Jesus. That's been established. And what do they say when they approach him? Teacher, we know that you are you know, a teacher of truth, and you, treat, you teach the word of God in accordance with truth, and you're, you, know, you show partiality to no man. They just completely butter him up. And then they hit him with the question, the obvious intent of which is to trap him. And they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And the point being, there was no good answer to that question, right? There, there was no good way for Jesus to answer that question. Because if he says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he is seen in the eyes of the common people as, as not being a good Jew, let alone a good rabbi, because he's supporting the idea of supporting the Romans. 
And if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, and a Roman overhears that, or it's repeated to the Romans, Jesus is now under arrest, and you know, the story goes that direction. There's no good answer to this question. This was a question they, they obviously used in their own discussions, trying to find a way to entrap one another, trying to find a way to get out of this conundrum. So Jesus simply answers by saying, show me the coin. Show me the coin. And somebody provides a denarius. And Jesus says, well, whose inscription is on the coin? And it was obvious because the coin was minted during the reign of Caesar, has Caesar's face on it. He says, great. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar, and give to God that which is God. So he totally answers the question, shuts down their attempt to trap him, and he also makes a very crucial point in very classic Middle Eastern style. One of the first things we were told before, before moving to Greek by an old Greek was, he said, remember this, in every Middle Eastern conversation, it's what's not said that's important. That's always more important than what is said. Well, what wasn't said? Jesus asked of the coin, whose image does it bear? And they said, Caesar's. Then give to Caesar that which is Caesar. Then he said, give to God that which is God. What's the obvious question? Who bears God's image? You do. The coin belongs to God. That's easy. Your heart, I mean, the coin belongs to Caesar. That's easy. Your heart belongs to God. Live in devotion to him. So Jesus takes their trap and turns it into a declaration of who we are. We are made in the image of God. That thing that happens when you and I look one another in the eyes. That, it, he's not suggesting that God has a physical face like we do. You can argue that one way or the other. But what is not debatable is that when we look one another in the eyes, there is a communication that shows us made in the image of a, of a God who is a God of community, a God of communication, a God who has never been interested in living in solitude. That is why we embrace the concept of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing for all eternity in community. And he draws us into that kind of relationship. We are intended to live as reflecting his character in community. So keep this question in mind, whose image do you bear? The second encounter involves the, the Sadducees. No doubt they were quite pleased to see the Pharisees shut down the way they were. These two groups didn't get along. The Sadducees, which again would have been the high priests, the temple servants, people were not real spiritual, but they too have a question. And they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to trap Jesus because they understand he has spoken the parables against them as well. And their concern is to disprove any strict adherence to the law. They did not follow the law except as it facilitated their stuff in the temple. They weren't interested in the rest of the law. Especially things like Deuteronomy 25 and the issue of a Levitical marriage. And if you're not familiar with it, it's one of the really strange laws in the Old Testament. It made sense in the context. It was kind of a property issue, but it was more than that. The law of the Levitical marriage simply said that if a man was married and then died without children, his widow had to marry his brother. I know that sounds really weird. It is weird from our perspective. Um, but the point being, the point was to keep the land within the family and that the land would always pass on 
and the owner of the land would bear the name of the original owner. It was to, it was to protect people's lineage and heritage. So if a man had a wife and the man died with no children, his wife would marry his brother, and the first child she bore from that marriage would be counted as the older brother's or the first brother's child. It was a way of maintaining lineage in the land. That was the purpose, as odd as it sounds to us. Well, the, 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 the Sadducees found in that law an argument against resurrection. You've got to give them credit for creative thinking. And what they said was, great, we have a guy among us, they made this story up, it's not true. We have a guy among us, he was one of seven brothers. And he married this woman and he died with no children and so the wife was married to the second one who also died and so on through seven brothers. I'm not making any comments about that at all. It has been done. Anyway, so therefore they pose the question, who's married or who should be married to in the resurrection because you've married all seven. And Jesus says, he doesn't say you fools, but could have. He says, you will begin to understand either the word of God or the power of God. Because at your core, you don't understand what the resurrection is all about. The resurrection is such that marriage will not even be an issue. You're totally wrong. And all of your assumptions about the resurrection. But then he goes on to say, while we're on the subject of the resurrection, that's not actually his words, that's my paraphrase. While we're on the subject of the resurrection, I have a question for you. Is not God referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now, we all agree God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And if that is true, that God is the God of the living, and you yourselves refer to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what does that say about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Who have been dead now for centuries, but they're in fact not dead at all. If that were the case, you would have to say something like God was the God of Abraham, but he's not. He is. He is the God of three guys that we all agree are dead. Well, if he's the God of the living, what does that mean? It means we're wrong, they're not dead. Using a biblical text that they embraced to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection. The third encounter, the Pharisees come back, only this time it's not the JV squad, it's the varsity. And they try a whole different approach. They're not intending so much to trap him as simply to kind of attempt to disqualify him. I would categorize this third encounter as like a Hail Mary. I mean, you know, that last desperate effort because everything else they've tried has failed. And they asked him a question that every little Jewish boy and girl knew the answer to. Everybody knows the answer to this question. What's the greatest commandment? And of course, Jesus responds with the right answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then Jesus anticipating the next question, which would be, and what is the second? He said, and the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is demonstrating that as radical as he is, he is still in line with the most fundamental teaching of the law. He is still in line with what everyone could ask of every, every good Jew. And then Jesus continues asking them about the relationship between Jesus and David. Now that I've got you guys in conversation, let me ask you a question. Uh, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they say, easy question for you, easy question for us. Everybody knows the Messiah is David's son. And then he says, then how does David call him Lord? Because David says, 
the Lord said to my Lord, wait a minute, the Lord said to my Lord, that means that God was calling the Messiah, the Lord, David saying he's, so you guys have a problem. Your understanding is critically flawed. Jesus is demonstrating that no one is going to trap him. And so it says in verse 46, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him a question. Now that didn't mean his followers didn't ask him questions. People with honest questions continued to ask them. And they continued to get honest answers, but no one dared try to use any kind of a rhetorical device to trip him. No, they had to go whole different direction. So let's look at the chapter as a whole, just quickly. The first two parables illustrate how dangerous it is to reject any offer that God makes. Then we have three encounters in which Jesus demonstrates how dangerous it is to try to outsmart him. Both things fail. It's impossible to trap him. You can't use anything he has said to move him into an area of unorthodox or unsound teaching. And there's a danger of trying to make more or less of what he has said. All of that is really important as we look back at this central verse, for many are called, few are chosen. When we look at that verse, you know, not every verse in Scripture is intended to make a doctrinal statement. Some verses say something a lot more important than that. Because if we try to make this into a doctrinal statement or fit it into a doctrinal paradigm, we're going to have problems. It's not going to fit. And any theological school of thought that you try to wedge this verse into, you're going to ultimately have problems because it's not intended to be a doctrinal statement. It's intended to state something so much greater. And I would illustrate that by, if, if you'd like to turn to chapter 23, or you can turn there later. In chapter 23, Jesus is talking to his listeners about what is coming upon Jerusalem. And it is horrific. He describes in great detail the destruction that will come upon the city because of their the rejection of him. And he ends it with the word desolation, which means a desert. This magnificent city will be reduced in just a few short years, literally, to a desert. It is because of the rejection that he talked about in the first two parables that's going to happen. So what happens, in, if you read chapter 23, the, her, the horrific destruction coming upon Jerusalem, it's because of what he talked about in the first two parables. And in chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You try to make that a doctrinal statement and you will pull your hair out. Because that verse of Scripture has the God of all creation saying, I wanted to do something and I couldn't do it. Put that into your doctrinal matrix. The God whom we hold to be absolutely sovereign and completely in control of human affairs saying, I really wanted to do it and I couldn't. No, there's something a lot bigger going on. There is, it is not a doctrinal statement. It's a statement of God's broken heart. And as Jesus stood over that city, he wept because he wasn't speaking in judgment but in sorrow. A parallel statement can be found in Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20 is one of the most extraordinary passages of Scripture. Um, Jeremiah was either the bravest man in human history or a fool. Because in Jeremiah chapter 7, 
chapter 20, rather. Jeremiah chapter 20, he says this, verse 7 and 8. You deceived me, God. Beg pardon? He just got done calling God a liar. You deceived me, God, and you overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. He's referring back to what happened in chapter 1 when God sovereignly called him to be a prophet. And God told him he would be with him. And God told him he would speak to him. And then Jeremiah went out and he spoke. And what happened? Well, Jeremiah continues in verse 8. He said, For each time I speak, I cry aloud, violence and destruction. Because the word of, for me, the word of the Lord has resulted in taunting and derision all day long. God, you called me to, you called me to preach. You called me to be a prophet. You see, I was going to say all this great time. Every time I open my mouth, nothing comes out but destruction of this city. That evidently is not what Jeremiah wanted to talk about. That evidently is not what Jeremiah really thought God was going to give him for a message. But it is what God gave him. And Jeremiah is so frustrated in that that he looked toward the heavens and he said, God, you lied to me. Isn't it marvelous? I love this passage of Scripture because it shows just how big our God is, how compassionate he is, that we can even in our angst, our, our sorrow, our fear, our weakness, look to the heavens and rail against him with an honest heart, and he's big enough to say, I can take that. I don't know about you, but I find tremendous reassurance in that. Because I know there are times my conduct has pretty much parallel Jeremiah's here. And yet my God looks down in his mercy, waits till I'm finished, waits till I come to a place of hanging my head and God, I know I was so out of line, but I also know you understand. And he says, that's right to both of the above. See, that same dynamic is at work here in verse 14, I would believe. I don't know how you, in your meditational visualization, view Jesus when he says many are called, few are chosen. But I believe that Jesus spoke it in a certain sense of despair, the same despair he will express in chapter 23. I visualize the Lord standing outside of a burning building, calling those inside to flee. But only a few heed the call and escape the flames. So he stands outside the building, his head in his hands, his heart is broken. We affirm that our God is absolutely sovereign over all the affairs of human, humanity, that he's all-powerful. Don't question that for a moment. But we also affirm that we... His children, created in His image, can and do break His heart. We break His heart. We do it all the time. He offers us that ability. How could a loving God be otherwise? How could a loving God the otherwise. Father, we come to you this morning confronted, I believe, by a truth that is uncomfortable. Um, if we have any inclination at all of love towards you 
and we understand it all what you have done for us. The sacrifice of your own son, Lord. Father, I like to think of those, of those, of those, those prayers the Jews read sometimes. And they, they'll, they'll, they'll read a passage of Scripture about the goodness of our God and the gracious of our God. And at the end they'll say, it would have been enough. And then they read something else marvelous that God, you've done for us. And time and time again, the response is, it would have been enough. It would have been enough. But it was never enough for you because out of your love for your children, you continue to minister to us. You continue to reach out to us. And Father, so many times we respond with the most profound ingratitude. And so many times, Father, we know we look the other way. We reject what you offer us time and time again. And when we do that, we come to the incredible realization that we do break your heart. And yet, Father, we know, wow, we know that your love is so expansive that all we have to do in that moment when we have, through our behavior, through our neglect, when we have broken your heart, all we have to do is say, God, forgive me. And in less time than it takes for us to articulate that prayer, you have already forgiven us out of your great love. Because we're your children. Father, as we go forward through this week, I pray we would be mindful of the great love of God, Father. We would be deliberate in choosing to receive every gift you give us, Father, with gratitude and worship, Father. And when we fall short, we would be quick to ask your forgiveness. That's who we need to be as your people. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.